Uh, before we sing, I'd like to uh, read first from our Old Testament reading. We've got uh, several uh, shorter Old Testament sections. I want to break it up slightly. So we begin with Leviticus chapter 25 on um, page 122 in your pew Bible. Leviticus 25, where we'll read um, verses 8 through 17. And then um, jump down to verses 25 through 28, and again, verses 39 through 43 of Leviticus chapter 25, as we try to get a bit of an overview of this year of the of Jubilee that God speaks of and that Christ alludes to in Luke 4. It says, starting at verse 8, you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to, his, return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you in it. You shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines for it is a jubilee and shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property and if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then down to verse 25, says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it, and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to its property. And then verse 39 your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. 
So you can see that the year of Jubilee there that it describes, it begins on the Day of Atonement. And on that year of Jubilee that begins on the Day of Atonement, it's characterized by the forgiveness of debts, by the release of slaves, and by mercy to the poor. And it's actually not quite clear whether Israel ever actually observed this year of Jubilee. But what is clear is that already from the very beginning when God instituted it in Leviticus chapter 25, he meant for it to to point forward to something else. He meant for it to point forward to the messianic age as we turn to the prophets in Isaiah 61 and find God there speaking of something called the year of the Lord's favor. It is described in such a way that that has lots of language that links back to Leviticus 25 and like that year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25 is characterized by forgiveness of debt, the release of slaves, and mercy to the poor and the outcast. Read on page uh, 737 in your pew Bible, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 7. The messianic servant of the Lord says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, They shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And we'll sing now of that same prophecy from number 490, where it looks forward to God's servant who will bring about this year of Jubilee, number 490. I'll remain seated and sing the three stanzas.
having uh, read and sung of that messianic year of jubilee that God there promises, we'll now uh, read of its fulfillment in Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Boys and girls, you remember this is uh, just after Jesus has been uh, baptized, he's been anointed with God's spirit, then he is immediately led into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation and fasting in which he is the victor. Now it says, beginning in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Congregation, as I've been uh, thinking about uh, my ministry here in relation to the call that was um, just before us, I've been thinking about the character of gospel ministry and the kind of of ministry that I I hope will continue to characterize my service among you. 
And frankly, I, I can think of few better passages than this one that speak to the character of gospel ministry that uh, inform the way that we should think about the ministry of the Word. Um, Christ here in this passage, he shows us the primacy of preaching in his own ministry. We see also the content of, of the preaching that characterized Jesus' ministry. And then we see also the response to Christ's ministry of preaching. This passage shows us the primacy of preaching. It shows us the content of his preaching, and then also the response to his preaching. Those are the, the three things that we see in this passage as we consider the shape of Jesus' ministry, that it might also inform our approach to gospel ministry. Now look at me first at the primacy of preaching in the ministry of Christ. He's just been anointed. He's been baptized. Boys and girls, remember in the passage, just, just two passages before this, baptized and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then he's immediately led into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days, uh, preparing for the, the ministry and the work that lies ahead of him. And now what is the first thing that we see Christ doing but preaching? It says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, and he taught in all of their synagogues, being glorified by all. This parallels Mark's statement about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where he says in Mark 1.14 that Christ came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus came preaching. We see that in verse 16 where he, he stands up to read and exposit the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. We see it in verse 18 where he says that he is that servant who has been sent to proclaim liberty and to preach good news. Christ came preaching. Is it not interesting that the very first story we read about his public ministry is the account of a sermon? Verses 16 through 30 is the, the preaching ministry of Jesus set at the very beginning of his ministry to set the tone for the rest. It's actually interesting. You see um, in the middle of, of this passage where Jesus says in verse 23, um, of course, you're, you're thinking to yourself that you want me to do what I have done in Capernaum. It's interesting. In the, in the, other, Luke, or the other gospel accounts, this is actually much later, uh, Matthew 13 53 to 58 gives us the account of Jesus' rejection here at Nazareth. It's after his ministry in Capernaum. But, but Luke, for a number of reasons, he's, he's uh, sort of moving the material around to, to, to set this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the very beginning of the gospel, because of the way that it prepares us for what's to come. First of all, in, in this, this theme of, of the Jews rejecting the gospel so that it might go to the Gentiles, but also... And that Luke wants to set at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry this priority of preaching. Set at the very beginning of his ministry to set the tone for the rest. And then if we were to look ahead right, right after this passage in Luke uh, chapter 4 verses 31 and following, we, we see that Jesus is immediately after this going to go on to, to heal many and to cast out demons. But what do we read in Luke 4.43? But that Jesus then departed from the masses who would have kept him from leaving so that he might preach. 
He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Echoing verse 18, where he is sent to proclaim liberty. According to Jesus, the reason why he's sent is to preach. And so verse 44, he went about preaching in all the the synagogues of Judea, of which were given here a, a sort of sample of the kind of preaching that characterized Jesus' ministry. We'll look at that in just a moment in terms of the content of Christ's preaching. That's really where I want to spend most of our time, but but we shouldn't skip over the importance of of this simple fact of the primacy of preaching itself in the ministry of Jesus. I'm told that the Puritans used to say God only had one son, and he made him a preacher. Christ says in verse 43, I was sent for this purpose, I think one of the things that we learn from this opening snapshot of Christ's ministry is the primacy of preaching, what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the most urgent need of the church today and the greatest need in the world. He said the primary task of the church and of the Christian ministry is the preaching of the word of God. That's primary. And Luke is showing us this here at the very beginning of Luke, his first book, in part to to prepare us for volume two in the book of Acts, where the ministry of the word is primary not only for Jesus' earthly ministry, but for his continued ministry from heaven. We find the apostles, for example, in in Acts chapter six, saying we cannot give up the ministry of the preaching of the word to serve tables. And, And so you must choose for yourselves deacons, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The primacy of preaching here in the ministry of Jesus sets the tone for the primacy of preaching in the ministry of the church. That's one of the points that Luke is making explicit in in, in the connection between volume 1 and volume 2. Acts 1.1, the the sort of hinge between these, these two gospels, it says that the gospel of Luke, my first volume, O Theophilus, was about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension. And so the implication is that what Luke is now writing to Theophilus in volume two in the book of Acts is what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension. And that which was primary in his earthly ministry, the proclamation of the word continues to be primary in his ministry from heaven. So let's learn from Christ, our chief prophet, in Luke chapter 4 about the primacy of preaching. I never think that anything else is our primary work, whether it be fellowship together or our ministering to the poor or our political engagement or or the music that we sing. Not that any of these things are unimportant, but Luke reminds us here what is most important. Not the administrative or counseling tasks of the pastor, not the fellowship needs of the church, but the proclamation of the word. That's what mattered most to Jesus, and so that's what should matter most to us. For the ministry of preaching, as the the second Helvetic Confession states, Christ continues to speak to his people. It says that in the faithful preaching of the word of God is the word of God. That Christ is continuing to speak to his people when his ordained ministers preach his word, his message as his heralds. 
And so a ministry that is informed by the emphases of Luke 4 is a ministry Make sure its pastor is able to give adequate time to rightly handle the word. It's a ministry that makes sure its people are eager to, to come and receive that word. And then it's a ministry that also seeks to let that proclamation of the word be characterized by the kinds of things that we see in the next part of our passage where we consider now the content of Christ's preaching. First, the primacy of preaching in the ministry of Christ, now that the content of the preaching that that characterized his ministry. We're in verse 18. Jesus um, opens up for them what we read earlier in Isaiah 61 about the spirit-anointed servant of the Lord who will proclaim good news to the poor and and liberty to the captives, the, the recovery of sight to the blind, and the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus reads that, and then he rolls up the scroll hands it to the synagogue attendant, sits down, and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Notice Christ proclaims himself as its fulfillment. As we think about the content of Christ's preaching, they notice um, two things. First of all, that it's the word that he preaches. This is an expository sermon. He's, he's expositing the words of Isaiah 61 along with the, the accounts from First and Second Kings of Elijah and Elisha. So the first thing we see is that it's the word that he preaches. But then notice, second, that Jesus preaches himself. Christ is here proclaiming himself as the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so it says in verse 20, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Beloved, that is the goal of all Christian preaching, that the eyes of all would be fixed on Jesus on Christ as the fulfillment of the scriptures. That is the goal and aim and and prayer of my preaching. It would lead you to have your eyes fixed on Christ. Not on yourself as you look within, either in discouragement or perhaps a little bit puffed up. Not on your works. Not on your doctrine abstractly, nor on the wrong doctrine of those other people. But on the person of Jesus. Um, J.I. Packer said the purpose of preaching is to, to mediate meetings with God. It is to give men and women a sense of God and his presence. It is to say it's to fix your eyes on Christ in worship. That's the goal and purpose of preaching, to fix your eyes on him so that you might be made more and more like him, to give you a sense of the beauty and glory of the Savior in his person and work. That's what Christ is doing here as a model for all Christian preachers. He preaches himself from the scriptures that the eyes of all might be fixed on him. I pray that's been the effect of of my ministry among you so far that would continue to be that I would preach to you Christ so that your eyes more and more might be fixed on him. And the good news that he proclaims in verse 18 of of freedom to captives, of salvation for the poor, of of sight for the blind, of of the the, the year of the Lord's favor, liberty for, for the oppressed. This year of jubilee, that's what Christ 
is here announcing. He's announcing the year of Jubilee when debts will be forgiven, when slaves will be freed, and when the poor will be shown mercy. Remember, that's what Isaiah chapter 61 proclaimed, is it took that idea from Leviticus 25 and and showed it to be a prophecy of the coming messianic age. It, It would be like the year of Jubilee that was meant from the beginning to teach God's people about the mercy he would show them in that new age. And Christ here, on this Sabbath day in the synagogue in Nazareth, as he opens up the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 61, he is announcing the arrival of that messianic age in his own person. Christ is announcing the arrival of the day when debts will be forgiven, when slaves will be freed, when the poor will be lifted up and shown mercy, and God will dwell with his people in such a way that they will eat and be satisfied, and they will be given everlasting joy. Christ is here announcing the purpose of his mission through the gospel he proclaims to erase our debts, to free us from bondage, to show mercy to poor and needy sinners like us and to usher in that new age of which the year of Jubilee was but a picture. Can you understand now the significance of this passage as as the choice for Christ's first sermon in the book of Luke? It speaks of him lifting up the poor, even foreigners, two themes that be developed in Luke's gospel. It speaks of the forgiveness of debt, a major theme in Luke's gospel, and it speaks of Christ showing mercy to the outcast and the oppressed. And Christ will do all of these things literally throughout his gospel, as as Luke is, is described as the gospel for the poor. But he will do all of these things also in a deeper sense, as he will show mercy to poor and needy sinners like us who are enslaved to sin with a debt that we cannot pay. And yet he will forgive that debt and he will draw us into fellowship with him, even feasting. As we'll see that that theme of of table fellowship with outsiders and sinners, the poor throughout Luke's gospel. So many of these themes from this Jubilee prophecy will pervade this book, even sight to the blind, as in Luke 7 and Luke 18, we see Christ giving blind men sight. You could say Luke 4 is is a forecast at the beginning of Luke's gospel of the kind of salvation that Christ will accomplish. He is here preaching the good news that he's about to make possible. And we'll say a bit later on about how it is that Jesus makes this good news possible. But before we get to that, there's a few other aspects of Jesus' preaching that I want to draw out. We see that he preaches himself from the scriptures so that everyone's eyes might be fixed on him. We see that he preaches good news of the year of Jubilee, the the forgiveness of debts and freedom from bondage. Then verse 22 says that as Jesus preached these things, they all marveled at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Jesus preached himself, Jesus preached good news, and Jesus preached grace. Notice the first adjective that is used in Luke's gospel to describe Jesus' preaching ministry is gracious. I think that's kind of an interesting litmus test that every preacher would do well to ask if our our preaching measures up to. Could it be said that the words coming from my mouth are gracious? That they are filled with the grace 
of the gospel. I would suggest that if we're really doing verse 20 and preaching Christ from all the scriptures, that all eyes are fixed on him, or if we're doing verse 18 and proclaiming this good news, then it should be able to be said of our preaching that it's gracious. We are preaching the one who is grace incarnate, who says to us, as we heard in our call to worship, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is the one of whom the psalmist speaks in Psalm 45, and it says that that grace pours forth from his lips. The tone of, of the preaching of Christ was gracious because the message of his preaching was grace. As he preached himself as the one who brings freedom to those who are enslaved, who brings forgiveness of debts to those who have a debt that they cannot pay, and mercy to poor and needy sinners, saying, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. The tone of Christ's preaching was gracious because he preached himself. May we likewise preach his person and works that it could be said of our preaching too that it's gracious. And then notice in verse 24 and following, also the scope of Christ's grace. That it's apparently not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. And actually, if you, if you were paying attention to Isaiah 61, that was one of the themes that, that uh, around verses 5 through 7 is present already in that Jubilee prophecy in Isaiah 61. But, but Jesus here makes it explicit as he emphasizes in his first sermon here in Nazareth that, that the scope of his grace, it, it's not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. As he uses, you could say, as his, his uh, supporting sort of companion text from First and Second Kings, these two illustrations of the prophetic ministry after which his prophetic ministry is patterned. He points us to Elijah and then to Elisha, both of whom proclaimed God's grace not just to Israel, but interestingly, when they were, were persecuted and, and cast out, as Jesus will be, they went to Gentiles. Boys and girls, you remember the story of, of Elijah where he goes to that poor widow of Zarephath in Sidon who humbly receives God's prophet and trusts in his power to save. And so God multiplies her flour and her oil and gives her bread. Or several chapters later in Kings, in the ministry of Elisha, when Elisha heals a leper, and though that, that, that leper is not one of the many lepers in Israel but it's the name of the Syrian. The Syrian. Who, who at first, you, you might remember, he didn't want to humble himself. He was a, a little bit insulted at, at this, this idea that, that he would have to go and wash himself in the Jordan, dipping himself several times as Elisha told him to. But then he finally does humble himself and is healed. And Jesus uses these two examples as pictures of the kind of ministry that he is going to carry out, where the year of jubilee that he proclaims includes even foreigners. The gospel that he preaches goes to every nation. That's how Luke's gospel is going to end in Luke 24. 
And it's not just a theme in Luke, but also in the book of Acts, where where Israel rejects the gospel, like these Jews in Nazareth reject Jesus. And so the gospel goes to the nations who humble themselves like Naaman and like that poor widow, who recognize that they are the, the poor, the captives, and the blind of verse 18. And so cast themselves upon God's grace. Jesus is holding up these two Old Testament examples as pictures of the posture that we are to have in receiving his grace. Pictures not just of the scope of God's grace, but also of the posture that we're to have in receiving God's grace, admitting that we are lepers who need to be cleansed, that we are poor widows who who our only hope is to cast ourselves on him. But notice as Jesus preaches this, his friends in Nazareth, they don't really like being compared to these nasty Gentiles. They don't so much like being compared to these lepers like Naaman or to poor widows from Sidon like that woman in Zarephath. And and so it says that they're angered by Christ's preaching. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with, with wrath. They no longer like the gracious message that Jesus proclaims, not if it means salvation for the Gentiles, not if it means that that they have to admit that they are are poor and needy sinners like that Gentile widow or that Gentile leper who, who have to humble themselves and be cleansed. And so the gracious words that Christ proclaims, which made them marvel back in verse 22, now fill them with wrath just a few minutes later. Isn't it something that the preaching of grace could elicit this kind of response? And yet this begins something of a theme in Luke, where in chapter 5, the righteous are offended by Christ feasting with sinners. In chapter 6, they're filled with fury when he heals a man's hand. In chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee is mad that Jesus lets a sinful woman kiss his feet. You can trace this theme of anger at Christ's grace through virtually every chapter of Luke's gospel, most notably in chapter 15, where the grumbling of the Pharisees at Jesus' grace towards sinners leads to that parable of the prodigal son. Luke's gospel is going to emphasize the grace of Jesus, and yet it's a grace that makes the righteous angry. And I say righteous, meaning self-declared righteous. It makes them angry. And people today, just like the Pharisees in Luke 15, or these Nazarenes in the synagogue of Luke 4, are angered at the preaching of grace insulted at the suggestion that we must admit we are poor and needy sinners of the debt we cannot pay. But that is the very nature of the good news that Christ proclaims, that he still proclaims today. Don't be angered at the preaching of grace. Don't respond like these Nazarenes who are frustrated by by the scope of God's grace and are frustrated by the insinuation that they must humble themselves and admit they are poor and needy sinners too. 
I said this, this passage gives us something of a, a paradigm of what gospel ministry, what the preaching of the word is to look like. Well, it also gives us a chief example of how not, as the people in the pew, to respond to the preaching of the gospel. Not to get angry when the sum and substance of the sermon is Christ. Not to get angry when, when the tone is one of grace and not of judgment. Not to be offended when, when the reach of Christ's grace brings in those who, who are different. We're given here a picture of, of, of how not to respond to the preaching of the gospel. And notice the example that we're given is of Sabbath-keeping, synagogue-going, religious, covenant people who grew up with Jesus and were quite familiar with him. And yet here in this passage, their familiarity breeds contempt. Their religiosity makes them allergic to grace, so much so that they rise up in the middle of the service. They they try to drive him out of town to cast him over a cliff and kill him. This is the response to those who hate the gospel of grace. It is a shadow of the end of Luke's gospel where they will kill him. God's prophet, not welcome among his own people, like all of those Old Testament prophets who preceded him. Remember, he'll say in Luke chapter 13, it cannot be that a prophet of God would die outside of Jerusalem. He recognizes that just like all those prophets before him, he's going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. This passage is a little shadow at the very beginning of Luke's gospel of what is coming at the end. God's prophet not welcome among his own people. The servant of the Lord rejected, killed. This is where Luke's gospel is heading. And in fact, it is that death that awaits him at the end of the gospel that makes possible the very salvation he here proclaims at the beginning of his gospel. I'm here in Luke 4, the, the beginning of his ministry, Christ preaches grace and it makes them want to kill him. And ironically, it's that very death that makes possible the very grace he proclaims. The year of Jubilee is about the forgiveness of debts. But that forgiveness comes at great, co- a great cost to Christ himself who will absorb those debts in his own body. The year of Jubilee is about liberty for those who are captive, and Christ will make that possible by himself becoming captive, arrested, and bound. The year of Jubilee is about sight for the blind, not only physically, but also spiritually. And Jesus, in Luke 22, will make that possible by himself being blindfolded on the way to the cross as he's struck and mocked. And they say, who hit you? All of the grace that Christ here preaches is made possible by the death that he's going to die as the rejected prophet scorned by his people. Remember when we read in Leviticus chapter 25, it said that the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement where all the sins of God's people were placed on a sacrificial substitute in their place. So it is with the year of Jubilee that Christ here proclaims it requires a substitute who will die for the sins of the people, who will pay their debt, who will himself become poor that they might be made rich. 
who will bear the judgment of God so that the judgment that Isaiah 61 spoke of might not be theirs. It's interesting, back in Isaiah 61, verse 2, after it says, immediately after it says that God's servant will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, then says in the very next line, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But notice, as you look in Luke 4, at Jesus' quotation of that, Jesus omits that line about judgment because he has come to bear that judgment for us. For those who respond to Christ's gracious summons in Luke 4, that line about judgment is omitted because he will bear that judgment for them. As previewed in this passage already, which points to his death, he is the rejected prophet of verse 24. He he proclaims the acceptable year of the Lord's favor, but he is not acceptable to them. Verse 24 uses that same word for, for favor from verse 19. He proclaims the year of the Lord's acceptance, but his grace that he's preaching is not acceptable to them, and so they want to kill him. But in God's wondrous plan, that death will be the very day of atonement that makes possible this year of jubilee. For every poor and needy sinner who responds to Christ's preaching of grace, which continues to go forth even now, who who responds to this preaching of grace, not like these enemies of the cross in Nazareth, like the sinners in Luke 5, or like the widow of Zarephath or Naaman the Syrian who recognize they are the, the poor and needy sinners whose only hope is the grace of Christ. May we too respond to the preaching of grace by fixing our eyes on Jesus in faith. And may that ever continue to be the note that goes forth from this pulpit as Christ himself proclaims this year of jubilee. And they respond not with anger, but marveling at the gracious words that come from Christ's mouth. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ came preaching as our chief prophet who fully reveals to us the will of God concerning our salvation, but also our priest who will die being that rejected prophet who by that death will open up the floodgates of mercy that in his death our debt might be paid, that in his judgment ours might be lifted, that in his being blindfolded we might be given sight, in his captivity we might be freed, in his becoming poor for our sakes we might be made rich. Lord, help us never to respond to this gospel by being angered at Christ's grace, either at its scope in bringing in people who might not be like us or in its very nature, that in order to receive it, we must admit that we are poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. That we are those blind, poor captives awaiting the trumpet announcing the year of Jubilee made possible by that day of atonement in the death of Christ. Lord, would it be that the proclamation that goes forth from this pulpit and the posture by which it is received would be informed by this passage, that always the proclamation for this pulpit would be gracious, fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
and that never would we be angered by that grace, but would marvel that it's given even to us. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our chief prophet, our only high priest, and our eternal king. Amen.